This is The Resident Review, a plastic surgery podcast. This is a platform designed for education in plastics, hand, and craniofacial surgery from medical student to master surgeon. Our episodes take you through high-yield topics along with experts in the field in order to maximize your knowledge and refine your techniques. If you like what you hear today, be sure to visit our website, theresonantreview.com, for episodes, outlines, resources, and more. And stay tuned after the episode for a brief message from our sponsors. So today's episode is part of our quick hit series. Um, when we're preparing for the in-service, I am Rosie Tillis, and I'm here with Tori Wickenheiser from Duke. And uh, we're really excited to start our quick hits breast augmentation and mastopexy episode. Tori, thanks for thanks for coming. Of course, happy <laughs> to be here. Um, so we will start off talking a little bit about breast development and anatomy, um, and then we'll move into some anomalies and talk a little bit more about augmentation specifics and then mastopexy specifics. And then we'll end with some discussion about BIALCL. So Tori, you want to start us off with breast development? So um, talking about breast development, we're looking at the milk line and that forms at five weeks of gestation and courses from the axilla to the groin. Normal breasts then form in the prepectoral region at the fourth and fifth intercostal space. The ectodermal layer then penetrates the mesoderm after there has been a regression of the milk line. The ingrowths of ectoderm become the nipple and ductal tissue, while the mesoderm becomes the connective tissue, so the smooth muscle and adipocytes and vascular tissue of the breast. And that was a question on our in-service last year. In terms of hormones related to breast development, estrogen is the primary hormone promoting development of breast epithelium and ductal tissue, and estrogen stimulates the pituitary gland to produce IGF-1, which actually causes breast growth. Progesterone acts in combination with estrogen to regulate breast development, and then oxytocin and prolactin are the hormones controlling lactation. Awesome. So a little bit about breast anatomy. Um, Sensation to the nipple areolar complex comes mainly from the lateral cutaneous branch of the fourth intercostal nerve, and that is in a deep plane and it's usually damaged in nipple sparing mastectomies. Um, It also gets sensory innervation from the medial anterior cutaneous branch of T3 and 4, which lies in a superficial plane. So less often damaged. Um, when we talk about nerves going into this area, we talk sometimes about pec blocks. So there are different kinds of pec blocks that we can do to block the nerve supply um, and, and get some pain control for women with these surgeries. So the pec one block goes into the plane between the pec major and minor and hits the lateral and medial pectoral nerves. The pec two block goes into the plane between the pec minor and the serratus and hits the intercostal and intercostal brachial nerve. And then a serratus block goes into the plane between the serratus and latissimus and hits the long thoracic and thoracodorsal nerves. The blood supply to the breast is via the internal thoracic or internal mammary perforators, the lateral thoracic vessels, thoracocromial vessels, which are preserved in subpectoral placement um, of implants. And then in breast augmentation, the internal mammary vessels, um, the perforators are usually divided in both the subglandular and subpectoral implant placement. And the thoracochromial vessels are generally preserved in subglandular placement. Blood supply to the nipple areolar complex is, comes from perforators of the internal mammary artery. And breast ptosis occurs through a combination of atrophy of the breast, loss of elasticity of the skin envelope, and attenuation of Cooper's ligaments. And that's usually on the chest. One more thing about breast anatomy. This is more of like a general surgery tidbit, um, but we could definitely be tested on it regarding lymph nodes. So level one lymph nodes lie lateral to the pec minor. Level two lymph nodes lie behind the pec minor and below the axillary vein. 
Level three lymph nodes lie medial to the medial border of the pec minor. And then rotter's nodes lie between the pec major and minor. So I usually think of it in like a little diamond. Oh, I like that thought. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go on to talk about some anomalies of breast development. These always show up on the test in one way, shape, or form. So we'll go through all of them here. Starting from the top, amastia is absence of the breast and the nipple. Amasia is absence of the breast, but the nipple itself is present. Athelia is absence of the nipple. And then there are some syndromes that we'll go through that are commonly tested. So Poland syndrome is a syndrome with abnormality of the pec muscle. And that is really the standout um, feature. It's got absence of the sternal head and associated ipsilateral limb hypoplasia, symbrachydactyly, hypoplastic breast, and a superiorly displaced nipple. That is in contrast to anterior thoracic hypoplasia that presents as a unilateral sunken anterior chest wall, hypoplasia of the breast superior place nipple areolar complex as well, but with a normal pectoralis muscle and normal sternum. Other pectus deformities um, show alteration in appearance of the sternum and the costal attachments. Um, and then going on, we have tuberous breast deformity that presents as hypoplastic breast parenchyma, herniation of parenchyma into the areola, enlarged areolae, and superior placement of the inframammary fold and general asymmetry. We're often tested on some of the various treatments for tuberous breast deformity, and that includes implant placement via dual plane technique, radial parenchymal scoring to prevent the double bubble, which sometimes shows up on pictures, and then expand the pocket with that as well. You can also lower the inframammary fold, and then a circumareolar mastopexy uh, helps reduce the size of the areola as well specifically tested on lowering the inframary fold and then the radial scoring. Yeah. The radial scoring, I feel like has come up on multiple years and now I have the double bubble, like burned in my Mm -hmm. (laughs) going on to talk a little bit about accessory breast tissue. So that presents as a, as a uh, result of failure of regression of the milk line. And so breast tissue remains in locations outside of uh, the normal breast, but still along that original milk line. The most common location is in the axilla. And then treatment includes excision after a proper workup. So that means a mammogram if older than 40, and then no palpable masses like a normal workup you would do for any breast mass. And then if the patient's young and has no abnormalities, then you don't necessarily need to do a workup prior to resection. So just following the general guidelines lines for working up breast masses um, based off of age. And then we did get tested last year on polythelia. So that is two or more supernumerary nipples. Um, and that actually is fairly common. It's in two to 6% of females. And then we were tested on the fact that there's a correlation with renal disease in these patients. So 19% of patients with polythelia uh, have renal adenocarcinoma and 16.5% of those patients actually have end-stage renal disease. So we were tested on that. And I surely did not know that (laughs) 2021. Yeah. So if you see polythelia, then you want to definitely do an examination to evaluate their kidneys. Um, when we talk about breast screening, the American Cancer Society recommends optional annual mammograms starting at age 40 to 44. And then they do recommend um, annual screening, screening mammograms from 45 to 54. And then after the age of 55, they change that to biennial screening mammograms. Um, and then breast implant screening mammograms includes the elk infuse. Diagnostic mammograms are usually obtained if there's a clinical abnormality or abnormal finding on a screening mammogram. Um, So this includes magnification and spot compression to evaluate these specific abnormalities. 
And then um, some of the findings for some of these abnormalities, especially for fat necrosis, because that's one of the things we often see as plastic surgeons after some of our procedures. Um, so fat necrosis looks like lipid cysts, scattered microcalcifications, which are round, spherical, and punctate, and then diffusely scattered. That Those are all benign findings. Um, anything that is clustered or branching pattern may be, indica uh, may be indicative of a malignant finding. So changes um, requiring biopsies are more common in breast reduction rather than autologous fat grafting, actually, which has been a topic of concern recently when we're talking about doing a lot of fat grafting to the breast, but actually it's more common in breast reduction. All right, I'm gonna talk a little bit about implants themselves. Um, so the newest generation of implants are more cohesive. They have lower rupture rates and less rippling. Smooth implants are associated with a higher uh, degree or more severe capsular contracture risk, uh, but less incidence of BIA, ALCL. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later on in this episode. Um, textured implants are the ones that are associated with BIA, BIA, ALCL, um, but have a lower risk of severe contracture. Anatomic implants are those that are shaped anatomically and need a preci precise surgical pocket uh, because rotation can cause deformity and need for revision. And then malposition is a risk with anatomic implants just due to the way that they're shaped. Most of those are textured and they are more prone to seroma. In terms of the type of implant fill, so silicone has a higher cross-linking of silicone that improves um, form stability, so a cohesive gel uh, that doesn't lose its shape as easily. And the risk of silicone implants includes gel fracture and delamination of the shell, and then rupture can cause inflammation and granuloma. And I just remembered off the top of my head that, that it's like the MRI finding that they show is like the spaghetti sign or the linguine <laughs> sign. That's what it was. And I'll <laughs> never forget that. But um, that's the, I think the MRI finding, if you have a rupture of a silicone implant. Mm -hmm. uh, saline implants, they adjust quickly to body temperature. They have more rippling and if they rupture, they will completely absorb. So it will be an obvious size differential as compared to a silicone rupture. Uh, poly implant prosthesis. Um, these are old implant types. They have an increased risk of rupture. So patients are offered um, explant or annual follow-up if you see a patient that has had one of those implants placed in the past. I think they were from France, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know why I know that. Um, so talking about the placement of breast implants and augmentation, the most in, uh, important factor for determining the size of your implant that you're going to choose is the breast face width. And then, um, in, in terms of where you're going to place it, you can place it in a subglandular or a dual plane or a subpectoral. And the subglandular plane is also known as prepectoral. Um, the subglandular plane is above the pectoralis muscle, but under the breast tissue, the dual plane includes placement of the implant subpectorally in the superior pole and subglandular in the inferior pole. So you just elevate some of the pectoralis muscle and then slide the implant underneath it, slide half of the implant underneath it. Um, to determine which is appropriate for a patient, the Tebbets recommends pinching the skin and subcutaneous um, tissue in the upper pole for a pinch test. And if that pinch test is over, uh, less than two centimeters, then the author recommends dual plane placement or subpectoral um, because a um, so glandular placement may be too obvious that their, their skin might be too thin for it. Um, Subpectoral placement, we're off, often tested on this, and this is a very, very common finding we see, is associated with animation deformity. So this is defined as lateral displacement of the implants with activation of the pectoralis muscle. So if somebody puts their hands on their hips and squeezes or does weightlifting or push-ups, they will have a huge jump in the implant 
The ideal upper pole to lower pole ratio when we're placing these implants and trying to make sure that the, the normal anatomy of the breast still remains appropriate. The upper pole to lower pole ratio is 45 to 55. And then a little bit more about placing breast implants, incision type is often um, a topic of discussion. So inframammary incisions are well hidden in people with ptosis. Um, and then you have the best control of pocket development with the inframammary incision. You also have periareolar incisions, which may be associated with a contracture due to ductal bacteria that are contaminating the implant. And then you also have transaxillary and transumbilical placement, which are usually just the saline implants because you obviously can't shove a silicone implant through there. In terms of evaluation of breast implants, um, we'll talk a little bit just briefly. So the most recent FDA recommendations include an MRI at five to six years post-op to evaluate for rupture and then re-evaluation every two to three years. So it's important to talk to patients um, about the need for follow-up and evaluation of their implants so that they're aware of that following their surgery. And then like we talked about findings for rupture, linguine sign, or rear pasta of choice. Um, <laughs> and that is a sign of intracapsular rupture. Generally it's not, um, clinically evident, um, or the teardrop sign is another named sign for that as well. Bowtie pasta sign. Yeah. Bowtie. Any sort, pick your pasta. PD, lasagna, you mm. name it. We I can make it. it. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, I can talk about some complications of breast augs. Um, so revision is the, the highest um, risk of breast augmentation is, is the need for revision, essentially. Um, you can have spontaneous galactorrhea, which is thought to be due to changes in the innervation um, of the breast tissue. You have the interruption of the intercostal nerves or pressure related to the implant placement. So postpartum um, symptomatic galactoseal or spontaneous galactoria, if it doesn't go away, can be treated with bromocryptine, which is a dopamine receptor agonist that inhibits milk production. Um, that you can also have a late seroma, which is defined as a seroma occurring over one year after implant placement. This is most commonly related to textured implants and cre can create a double capsule sign on ultrasound or imaging, um, which fills with fluid and treatment includes capsulectomy and pocket change. And the late seroma is one of the signs of um, BIAL, BIALCL. I always miss an A in there. Um, breast implant illness is a term a little bit newer used to describe a multitude of symptoms seen in patients with breast implants. Symptoms can include like fatigue, anxiety, headaches, brain fog, uh, photosensitivity, hormonal issues, rash, and hair loss. And many of these symptoms are very common in people with autoimmune diseases. So they can be associated with people with known autoimmune diseases, but they should also be evaluated for this possibility by like a rheumatologist or another medical professional, like PCP. So if a known autoimmune disease is diagnosed, then try treating that disease first, um, but you can always offer them explantation, which has a varying report of success in the literature. Capsular contracture is also another complication of breast augmentation. So this may be caused by biofilm formation from subclinical infection. And there's a Baker grading system for capsular contracture. So to shorten it, because I know most of these definitions are pretty long, uh, Baker grade one is normal. Baker grade two has palpable capsular contracture. Baker grade three is visible and Baker grade four is painful. Uh, so the operative techniques that you can use to decrease capsular contracture include IMF incision, subpectoral implant placement, use of textured implants, and then an increased risk of capsular contracture includes a periareolar approach 
or a subglandular replacement and smooth implants. The only things that we can do to correct capsular contracture include site change and implant exchange. And some studies have also mentioned a couple of these um, Monte Lucaster cyclosporins, so um, anti-inflammatory or anti-autoimmune. Is that what that is? Immunologic. Immunologic mod, mod, modulators. That's the, that's the, that's the term. The there it is. Two rheumatologists <laughs> here telling you. Source. <laughs> <laughs> rheumatologic needs, which more so emphasizes the fact that these people probably need to see a rheumatologist. Um, so another thing that we're actually really commonly tested on is Mondor disease. This is a benign self-limited thrombophlebitis in the patients who have had breast dogs. It's described as a painful tender cord that appears around two to three weeks post-operatively. And the treatment for this is warm compresses and moist dressings. I so like this disease sounds like terrifying Mondor disease. Like it's supposed to be some, uh, and it's really just an inflamed. That's all it is. Any little cord. Yeah. So you don't need thrombolytics. I mean, you don't, you don't need anticoagulation. You just need warm compresses and moist dressings and it generally goes away. Another thing that we can talk about for uh, breast augmentation uh, complications include a double bubble deformity. So double bubble deformity is a clinical finding that is divided into two types. Type A is where the implant is above the breast mound. It's caused by ptosis hanging off of the implant. So you'll also see it called Snoopy deformity or waterfall deformity. And then type B, the implant is below the breast mound. So A above, B below. Um, type B, double bubble deformity occurs with over dissection of the IMF. So the implant falls. Other complications listed in order of incidence include sensory changes, hematoma, and infection. Nice. I'm going to move on and talk a little bit about mastopexy to improve ptosis. Um, so first, uh, we can't talk about mastopexy before evaluating breast ptosis and the classification of that. So that's the regnal uh, ptosis classification. Definitely feel like I mispronounced that, but we're going to just keep moving along. Just breeze by it. Yeah. Grade one ptosis, the nipple is at the level of the IMF or once, you know, at the level to one centimeter below grade two, the nipple is about one to three centimeters below. So it's between the IMF and the lowest contour of the breast and grade three, the nipple is at the lower lowest contour of the breast. I basically picture that as like it being totally underneath at that point because it's, it's so pointing far. down. Yeah. It's looking at the ground. It's looking in exactly the wrong direction. Wrong direction. Totic breasts are results of involutional changes after childbirth generally, which um, are due to the decrease in the number of lobules. And those are replaced by stromal matrix and fat. So an actual change of the makeup essentially of the breast tissue after childbirth. Mm -hmm. So some of the um, ways that we do mastopexy, we have different designs of mastopexy. So a periareolar mastopexy is suited for correcting minimal degrees of ptosis. You can get one to two uh, centimeters of elevation of the NAC with this. Complications of the periareolar mastopexy include flattening of the central breast mound, widening of the areola, irregularity, and bottoming out, which is basically a descent of the breast tissues and widening of the bottom of the breast. Areolar spreading is the most common here. Um, vertical mastopexies are associated with an increased distance from the nipple to the IMF, so length of the vertical pillars. Um, and then wise pattern mastopexies. So for marking of wise pattern mastopexies, the angle of divergence of the lower limbs correlates to the amount of tissue removed. So if you have a wider angle of divergence, you will remove more tissue resected. And uh, more tissue resection can create a lower pole deformity, 
which can be also forced to be wider by large areolas. So basically if you have a larger breast, you're going to have a higher chance of getting a lower pole deformity, which are a um, boxy type of breast. And then specifically for positioning the NAC, it's usually set at Patangi's point, which is where you put your finger on the IMF of the breast and you transpose that point to the skin on top of the breast. So it's at the same level of your IMF. In terms of the pedicles for mastopexy, so you can have a couple of different ones and we'll go through what they're based off of. So the superior pedicle is based off the internal mammary perforators from the second intercostal space. And this has the highest risk of sensory and lactation loss with the superior pedicle. In terms of the central and inferior pedicle, this is based off the internal mammary perforators from the fourth intercostal space. The medial pedicle is the internal mammary perforators from the third intercostal space. And the lateral pedicle is based off the superficial branches of the lateral thoracic artery carried in Wurlinger's septum. Wurlinger. Wurlinger's. <laughs> so if you think about Everybody it. going to reference Schitt's mm-hmm. Creek. Bert Erblinger. Bert Erblinger. Oh. oh my God. I love that so much. <laughs> here with us today. Um, so if you think about it from um, the second, third, and, and fourth intercostal space, you would have the superior pedicle, medial pedicle, and then central pedicle. And then the lateral pedicle just does its own thing with whirlingers. Whirlingers. Or, or whirlingers. <laughs> <laughs> so discussing. Um, mastopexis with augmentation, they're a little bit more risky because you are taking away some of the skin and then you're also adding some volume. So it's a little bit more difficult to predict aesthetic results and you have higher rates of complications and revisions. And then the operative time is longer also, obviously, because you're doing two procedures. So advantages of the aug mastopexy include an improved superior pole projection and uh, um, the decreased risk of the waterfall breast deformity because that happens when the totic breast hangs off the implant. The biggest risk of the augmentation mastopexy is the need for revision. Let's see some complications. We have some complications of mastopexy here. Um, so the complications include NAC necrosis, wound healing problems, fat necrosis, superior nipple malposition, and NAC necrosis has a higher risk with obesity and tobacco use, wound healing problems. The risk is correlated with preoperative volume, average resection weight, smoking, and age. And then fat necrosis, the um, higher incidence is correlated with an increased risk with obesity and higher tissue resection weight. So they're all a little bit different, but essentially um, obesity, preoperative volume, average resection weight, and then um, tobacco use are all predictors of NAC necrosis with healing problems and fat necrosis. When it comes to superior nipple malposition, um, this is a really difficult problem to try and correct, but you can try and resect the lower pole um, if the inframemory fold measurement is too long. But essentially, if it's too high, it's not like you can add skin back above it. So you just kind of have to correct it from below. So the normal measurements when we're talking about nipple position, the notch to nipple, sternal notch to nipple is usually 19 to 21 centimeters. And then the IMF to nipple is seven to nine centimeters. And rounding us out, we'll add in at the end a little bit about BIA-ALCL since this has shown up a lot on recent exams and is a hot topic um, in all of our plastic surgery literature. So this is breast implant associated ALCL or, you know, I'm not even going to try to say all the words together, but um, it's 
It's associated with textured implants, so not smooth implants, textured, and associated with that macro texturing on the implant itself. It commonly presents and is tested uh, as a late presenting seroma. And the first step is to evaluate it with an ultrasound followed by an FNA, so fine needle aspiration. And that FNA is sent for markers via flow cytometry. And the critical thing to remember about the flow cytometry findings, which we were tested on last year, I believe, um, mm -hmm. is that this will be CD30 positive and ALK negative. And those are the markers that describe BIALCL specifically. They really got into the weeds last year and <laughs> talked about the staining of the cells themselves. So on right EMSA staining, just to make sure you like remember something from step one, <laughs> um, it will show pleomorphic cells with horseshoe shaped nuclei, nuclear folding and abundant vacuolated cytoplasm. And this is thought to be a T cell mediated process in general. Uh, so not like a B cell lymphocytic uh, clinical scenario. And mm -hmm. the treatment includes total capsulectomy and explantation and then removal of the lymphoma. So we'll see what they throw at us this year. But <laughs> we'll be ready. Do we want to leave our listeners with some fast facts about breast augmentation oh. and mastopexy? Let's do it. I think we should. All right. So these are going to be our five fast facts from this episode. Um, first, so for the normal measurements, when we're talking about breast, uh, breast mastopexy, and this applies also for breast reduction, the normal measurements, sternal notch to nipple, 19 to 21 centimeters, IMF to nipple, seven to nine centimeters. Um, when we're talking about capsular contracture, the only things that have been shown to consistently decrease the recurrence of capsular contracture is site change and implant change. When we're talking about deciding where to place an implant in general, we're using the pinch test. So to determine the appropriate plane, um, we're pinching the skin. And if there's thickness less than two centimeters, um, the recommendation is to do dual plane placement or um, subpectoral placement rather than subglandular because as Rosie said, you won't have enough skin and there might be um, aesthetic concerns with that placement. And then going back to some of our uh, congenital or you know syndromes related to breast development, um, Poland syndrome is the one to remember that has the abnormal pec muscle. So I just remember Poland and pec, that's the one where the pec muscle itself is abnormal. Um, whereas anterior thoracic hypoplasia has a normal pec. I feel like I get this wrong every time I'm doing a, a practice question about it. So this year we're gonna remember Poland syndrome. Bad, Poland and pec. Bad pec. Um, <laughs> And then again, going back to some of our cytometry, you know, step one-esque questions, BIA, ALCL, CD30 positive, ALK negative. We're going to get it. Awesome. So thanks so much for listening um, to our quick hits. The I think this is the first of our quick hits. First of many. It is. Oh, the first of many. Well, can't wait. So hopefully this is helpful to you guys. Um, don't forget that this episode is available on any streaming service and also at our website, theresinterview.com. So please visit, tell your friends, um, let's all do better on the in-service together this year. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.